What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, John Nichols will review politics in 2020, from Bernie in the primaries to Black Lives Matter in the streets to Trump demanding that Mitch McConnell vote for $2,000 for every American. But first, politics, ethics, and the coronavirus vaccine. The first group of Americans to receive the COVID vaccine are healthcare workers. There are about 20 million of them, and a lot of them are already getting ready for their second shot. Also, residents of nursing homes are in the first group. That's another 3 million people. Who should come next? For comment, we turn to Greg Gonsalves. He works on epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. He's been an AIDS activist for 30 years. He was in the New York Times Magazine this last weekend. He writes regularly for The Nation about the pandemic, and he's also a 2018 MacArthur Fellow. Greg, welcome back. Thanks, John. Well, the CDC recommended that coming after the healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes should be two very different groups. People who are 75 and older, we're told there's 20 million of those, and 30 million people who are frontline essential workers. This is first responders, grocery store workers, public transit and postal workers, teachers, daycare providers, States don't have to follow this this priority, but a lot of them probably uh, will. The question of who should come first and who should come next, is that a question we should leave to the scientists? There's lots of trade-offs in figuring out who gets vaccines in a, in, in a situation of scarcity like we have now. We don't have enough vaccines to go around. And so they're trying to thread the needle. They're trying to figure out, do you do it based on mortality? Maybe you should give it to everybody over 65. But then suppose you want to keep the train's literally running on time and school's open and daycare's open and your grocery store open. Maybe then you you make a question about societal functioning. Um, if we knew these vaccines prevented infection, maybe there'd be a case for not uh, just looking at mortality, but for looking for where there's heavy concentrations of transmission in different occupational sectors, different kinds of settings. Uh, so there's lots of things to think about in terms of these trade-offs. And the CDC did a reasonable job of it of it. The states are going to do their own sort of variations on the theme. The big question is why we're in this situation today where we're having to do this sort of make these Sophie's choices when we could have scaled up our production in a, in a much ro- more robust fashion and more importantly, gotten our delivery and implementation in order. You know, lots of vaccines are being sent out by the federal government. Not that many have gotten into the arms of the people who need them yet. You know, so there's a, there's a bottleneck post-supply um, that we have to have to address. I want to just look at the the question of the essential workers for uh, another minute. Another factor that separates them from the over seventy five group is if you're over seventy five, you can stay home. If you're an essential worker, we don't want you to stay home. We want you to go to work, and therefore we want you to put yourself in a position where you're more likely to be exposed. And the kind of people who do essential work are 
working class people who are more likely to become super spreaders because they're in contact with many more people during the day than the over 75 people staying home. They live in multi-generational families more, more frequently, in crowded housing much more frequently. On the other hand, as you say, if they get the disease, they're more likely to recover than people who are over 75. And it seems to me this isn't really a question for science. This is a question about ethics. It is. But public health is not just a scientific field. It's hemmed in by politics on every side. It's not just ethics because there's some data that you can use to, to understand what risk is. Mortality. You're saying certain professions are more likely to be exposed to the virus. Well, we can figure that out by looking at transmission patterns, um, looking at mobility patterns, looking at other sorts of epidemiological information. So these are societal choices we're making, not just epidemiological ones, but they have to be informed by evidence to the greatest deal possible. And the reason it's left to the states is because the states are going to have to make the the real hard choices about um, what to do with limited supply. Um, and the CDC is trying to give good guidance based on the on on reasonable scientific grounds. And, you know, people study these issues as a matter of um, academic disciplines within public health. Public health isn't just epidemiology. You know, there's bioethics, there's whole sets of disciplines under the giant umbrella of public health that have been part of these deliberations and these and this thinking, not just, you know, in the past six months, but, you know, for, for years and years and years about how to sort of deal with uh, these kinds of uh, choices in the midst of scarcity. I learned from the New York Times Magazine panel that you were part of on Sunday, that there's some fascinating evidence your profession has come up with about the concept of the over 75 group as being the most endangered. The average age of death from COVID for a white person is 81, but for a Latino person, it's 67. For a black person, it's 72. So Many Black and Latino people who die of COVID never make it to 75. Is that right? Yeah, that's what the, that's what, I think it was my colleague from Illinois who talked about this in terms of um, what she's thinking about to doing in, 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 in her state. Because the prognosis for people with COVID under different race, racial and ethnic groups is disparate, as we've talked about it. And, and you know, one of the other things that's been talked about in the context of um, vaccine allocation is how do you deal with sort of these health disparities. And it's not just essential workers or over 75s, um, because not all essential workers and all over 75s have the same kind of risk. Some of it's driven by um, minority status, ethnic status, but some of it's dealt with by pre-existing conditions and other sort of determinants of health. So I think one of the things that I was hoping to get across in the conversation with the New York Times was that it's really complicated stuff. It's um, these are hard social and epidemiological epidemiological choices, um, and there's no optimal answer. You are making value judgments, but reasonably informed judgments based on ethical principles, um, on scientific evidence, on political reality. When the vaccines get approved, it's because they've been shown to be both safe and effective. But how exactly did they define effective? Does effective mean? They, they they won't spread the infection to others? So the, the vaccines that have come out, um, largely the endpoint or the, the measure of efficacy in the trials has been prevention of severe disease, right? Hospitalization and death. The question of whether they prevent transmission is an open one. 
And we're waiting to see if, if the antibody protection that confers resistance against disease progression also translates to transmission. So you know, the reason we're talking about mortality and over 75s in nursing homes is because we know these vaccines can prevent death. Um, if we have more robust data that suggests they can prevent infection, you know, the calculus will change. New vaccines coming out might have uh, an edge on that, and we might be thinking about certain groups are going to get one vaccine because it prevents infection better, and another group will get a, a set of vaccines because it reduces the chance for, 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 for death. And, you know, the other thing is that these vaccines were studied in clinical trials, right? And so the efficacy you saw there, 85%, 95%, is about what happens in the context of a clinical trial where everything is set up to, to measure things perfectly. In the real world, you know, if we stop wearing our masks, stop doing social distancing, you know, we're basically making trouble for the vaccine because the vaccine is only as good as, as its part in a, in a comprehensive approach to disease prevention. You know, water is pretty good at putting out a fire, but not if there's a wall of fire and a forest fire like in the, that we've seen in California in the past couple of years. Uh, a, a fire, a single fire hose is not going to do much good. So we, so the the real world effectiveness of these vaccines depends on lots of our own behavior in the next coming weeks and months. So Biden takes office on January twentieth. What what should he be doing on day one to make up for all the problems we're now having with the pr- production and distribution of vaccines? Well, one is you know there's still sort of questions about how cooperative the Trump administration is being with the transition. We've seen it in the Defense Department and other national security sectors of the government. But we need to know what the plan was. You know, what was the rollout plan? And we're going to have to sort of, the Biden administration is going to have to look, take a close look at how we've allocated vaccines, um, how we're figuring out delivery and, and production and all these sort of different things to get us on the path towards fuller coverage much more quickly. He's talked about invoking the Defense Production Act. Um, which is one way in which he can ask manufacturers to sort of devote their uh, resources to to producing vaccine for the national supply. But there's things back in the pipeline of vaccine, the components that don't necessarily lend themselves to just sort of turning up the dial and making it go faster. You're going to have to build new factories and new plants. Um, so there's a lot of stuff to do that they were never prepared to do. Operation Warp Speed was all about R&D. It was never about delivery. And it shows, basically. And one of the key factors, which we've mentioned here in past conversations, is about the the different vaccines require different degrees of complicated handling. The the first one, the Pfizer vaccine, has to requires super refrigeration. My impression is that hospitals are the main places that carry this right now. The Moderna vaccine requires ordinary refrigeration. So that means most pharmacies at, this is the Walmarts and the CVSs and uh, everywhere in the country where there are pharmacies that have, that are used to refrigerating medicines. But what we really need for most of the world is vaccines that don't require refrigeration at all. We're talking here about the global south. Uh, Where do we stand on that research and development? Well, the cold chain is not a deal breaker for the global south. The Ebola vaccine, I think, needs a cold chain. I think there are plenty of vaccines that that require a cold chain have been distributed around the world. The big thing is about vaccine hoarding. The U.S., Canada, Europe, some other countries like Australia and others have basically sucked up all the supply of vaccines. So there's really none left to go around. 
Um, there are countries with reasonably robust health infrastructures like South Africa and, and others that are middle-income countries, which are at the back of the line for, for, for access to these vaccines. And there have been sort of international initiatives to, to, to make sure this doesn't happen, but they haven't necessarily been successful yet. They've not raised enough money to, to do what they need to do. And the vaccine supply has already been allocated uh, and, and spoken for by a lot of these sort of countries in the global north. And so we're in a situation where we're creating this sort of medical apartheid where if you're in a rich country, you're going to get vaccinated way before your peers in a country in the global south. And the problem is, is that the virus doesn't care where you live. Unless we stomp out the virus across the, the world, it's always going to be a risk to the rest of us. We don't know how long these vaccines uh, are going to confer protection. We're not going to be able to reach every nook and cranny of people who need to be vaccinated. And so we don't want imported cases coming into the, the U.S. or anywhere else. But if you can't sort of guarantee that everybody on the planet is going to get vaccinated or has access to it, you're setting us up for a long-term uh, problem. And what's your understanding of the production schedule now when there will be enough for the global south? It doesn't sound like it's anytime soon. I was reading in a South African newspaper this morning that later in 2021 that people will start getting it there, which is at least six months to a year behind the rest of us. And that doesn't even talk about sort of poorer countries in the global south um, and, and what their plans are to get access to these vaccines. I have a friend who lives in Hungary, and she says in Hungary for weeks, they've had three different vaccines. They have the Russian vaccine, Sputnik. They have something from China. And then they have one of, one of ours that got uh, approved right away. Is that going to help in the global south, that these other sources of vaccines that we aren't testing? Nobody's really seen the data for the Russian vaccine, and Russia is selling it all over the place. And so it's going to make things complicated. If I've been vaccinated with the Russian vaccine and it turns out not to work, what's going to incentivize me to come in to get the Moderna vaccine when it shows up in, in, in my country? And so this is an international global health problem. It's not a question about national vaccine policy, it's about global vaccine policy. We have to do this in a way that's coordinated across the globe. And one of the things that Biden will do when we uh, hit January is and go back into the World Health Organization, where these decisions should have been discussed all throughout 2020. One smaller domestic question that has a lot of my friends agitated, teachers. Where should teachers be in the hierarchy of who gets it first, given, given the scarcity that we're facing now? Little kids have their whole lives ahead of them, as opposed to the 90-year-olds and the 80-year-olds. They've lost a whole year of their short lives we want them in school. Uh, so shouldn't teachers have higher priority than lots of other people? Well, they are now part of frontline essential workers. And I think, I think there's been a lot of pressure because of the very reasons you discussed to ensure that teachers get priority in terms of vaccine administration, not because they have any specific mortality risk because of their median or mean age. It's that we want schools to be the last to close and the first to open. Joe Biden has said he wants to open, have schools open very, very quickly within its first 100 days. In order to do that, you're going to have to protect teachers and the rest of school staff um, who could catch this as a matter of a priority. We have to make trade-offs. Um, and we think kids and teachers are important. And that's what the CDC recommended, to, you know, 10 days ago. You know, I won't get a vaccine, you know, for, for many, many, many months. And that's fine with me. So the teachers have very strong unions fighting for, for them. Old people, of course, have the AARP, but 
a lot of people in what should be high priority groups don't have strong lobbying and political groups. Uh, Want to remind us of who is likely to be in that latter group? Well, look, we know that the pandemic has basically had a, uh, a disproportionate impact in communities of color, and both the National Academies of Science, uh, Engineering, and Medicine and different states have suggested using the Social Vulnerability Index, which is a measure that the CDC uses to measure social vulnerability, of which race is one of 15 components. And it's important that we think about how to do this uh, so that we don't just think about age categories or occupational categories, but realize that if you have two different communities with the same number of over 75-year-olds, um, one community, which is richer, has more spacious living arrangements that has much more um, access to healthcare, probably is at less risk of developing disease and developing severe complications than a, a similar neighborhood two miles down the road, which which has historically um, had high rates of diabetes and obesity, housing overcrowding. And so social vulnerability index is a way to do this um, and addresses the sort of need for communities that have been hardest hit for this by this pandemic to, to get protection from it first and foremost. Any final thoughts on questions that we haven't raised here? Get vaccinated when you, when it, when your turn comes up. I know there are people still out there worrying about, are these vaccines safe and effective? Yes, they are. If you want to go back to normal or close to it, the vaccine is one part of it, but don't take off your masks and keep up your social distancing because the vaccines are only good in combination with all these other things. Greg Gonsalves, read him at thenation.com. Greg, great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Next up, 2020, the year in politics. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today at home in Madison. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, John. Well, 2020 is certainly ending with a bang. We're speaking in as Trump is fighting for his demand that Congress should give $2,000 to every American instead of just 600 the Republicans, of course, pressured in him into signing the bill with the 600. It's it's amazing that Trump didn't come up with this before the election. I mean, he might actually have won. And now the Republicans in Georgia are saying they want the 2000. I wonder, do you think the Senate will do this to win in Georgia? Well, I, I will assure you that Mitch McConnell would do anything to win in Georgia. And I mean, including something that was actually good for the American people. <laughs> Which, the bottom line is that uh, Mitch McConnell's in a desperate position, and he's been put there by Donald Trump. It's a fascinating reality, and it does speak to, you know, kind of all the craziness of 2020, because at the end of the day, 2020 was the year that showed us just how desperate and extreme and damaged Donald Trump is as an individual and as a political player. And uh, when you are as much of a mess as this guy is, you will ultimately turn on your own. And, and that's what he's done. The important thing to understand is Donald Trump isn't really all that concerned about getting a $2,000 check to you, John Wiener. I just want you to know that. I mean, oh, I, no. I realize you're starting to soften up on the guy a little. Heartbreak. And, I know that Donald Trump, look, here's the reality. Donald Trump is 
furious at Mitch McConnell and the Republicans for not embracing his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Uh, McConnell has been very supportive of Trump, but a little resistant to the actual destroying of American democracy. And so that's got Trump mad. And then also, you know, Trump, the two sides of his brain, the other side is thinking as much as he hates to acknowledge it, that he probably is going to have to give up the presidency and he would like to go out on a popular note, giving people lots of money. So that combination of factors has led to this uh, turn against McConnell. And it's fascinating to watch. You know, I won't make predictions uh, on what ultimately will happen in the Senate, but I will tell you that it's getting closer and closer to a point where uh, McConnell might have to swallow hard and accept something he he desperately doesn't want. Well, it's hard to remember how the year in politics began that time before COVID. Uh, But of course, some of the key political events were the Democratic primaries early in the year. New Hampshire and Nevada were won by Bernie Sanders. And we thought, Democratic Socialism, this is going to be the year. Uh, Bernie is going to you know, fight the Wall Street Democrats who Biden has represented, you know, his whole career. Bernie, of course, did get the votes of young people. He ended up with 10 million votes, but Biden ended up with 20 million votes. And to me, the real turning point came in Michigan. Uh, Bernie had won Michigan in 2016. In 2020, Biden won every county of Michigan. So my question for you is, what happened to Bernie in 2020? The answer is that in many senses, Bernie is still Bernie. He's still doing exactly what he's always done. Remember, this is not a guy who lusted after the presidency. His was a policy-oriented, project-oriented candidacy. If he'd become president, he would have been thrilled because of what he could have done with the office. But it wasn't that sort of ego-driven thing. And it's notable that just a moment ago, we were talking about the fight over the $2,000 direct payments. Uh, that's being driven by Bernie Sanders. He's the one who upended McConnell's plans in the Senate by uh, threatening and apparently implementing a filibuster. So, uh, you know, what happened to Bernie Sanders was much more complex than than your usual presidential politics. After the South Carolina vote, which went to Biden and, and gave Biden a real boost, there was a recognition that it was either going to be Biden or Sanders. The basically the whole of the political upper the, the leadership of, of the Democratic Party and, and its leading candidates all coalesced around Biden. Even that might not have been enough to upend an ongoing Sanders campaign. Even whether Sanders got to the nomination, perhaps not, but at least carrying on and 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 being much more of a force. But then once you saw that, you know, kind of stumble frankly, in Super Tuesday, Sanders didn't do as well as expected. Then within days, you had COVID. And they were literally canceling mass rallies in Ohio and in other states. And and that that was really the end of it. I interviewed Sanders a number of times as this was happening. And in late March, he was he was still intent on carrying on, but you could tell he was sort of aching to get back on the road, to get back you know, to be out there with those rallies, be out there with the crowds. And frankly, 
to be leading a campaign that was all about going door to door and about having masses of young volunteers working, working, you know, the at in the at the grassroots, and um, that became impossible. Simply became impossible. And Sanders made a decision in early April that he was done, that that he wasn't going to pursue uh, a candidacy that was not going to prevail, and that would detract from something that you know I think he that he thought was the defining moment in our history, and that is a the struggle to get Donald Trump out of the White House, and b the struggle to deal with a pandemic that has created mass unemployment. And, and so what happened to Bernie Sanders is he was Bernie Sanders. He did, he did what he thought he did what he thought he had to do and uh, gave up on a candidacy that meant a lot to him and meant a lot to, to his supporters in order to focus on an ongoing struggle for economic and social and racial justice. And then the next big thing, summer came and after Memorial Day, after George Floyd was murdered by the police in Minneapolis, Black Lives Matter took to the streets with millions of people in hundreds of cities and towns. The biggest protest movement in American history. I think it played a part in the campaign, too. Black Lives Matter was very interested in not just in the streets, but also in the ballot box. What's your assessment of the political impact of the biggest protest movement in American history? Well, I think the biggest protest movement in American history was necessary because this country has failed uh, for 400 years to deal with with fundamental issues uh, and under Democratic and Republican presidents has failed to address uh, systemic racism, not just in policing, but well beyond it. And Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman from Minneapolis, uh, who actually represents the district where George Floyd was killed by the police, um, uh, Ilhan Omar has made a point immediately that this is about something much bigger. Yes, there has to be policing reform. Yes, there has to be uh, criminal justice reform and change, fundamental change there. But then you've got to get into the whole of our politics, the whole of our governance. And and we had some real progress there. I think the, the fascinating thing is the polling on it showed that um, Americans were ready, much more prepared for this than expected. Now, here's where the key test came in. It was a fascinating one. Through the summer, you saw additional incidents with uh, obviously the rise of concern about the, the killing of Breonna Taylor, the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and it was clear the problem wasn't going away, that the demonstrations had to continue, that the, the movement had to continue to press, not merely on the, the basic demands for an end to police violence, but also on this broader issues. And uh, Trump tried to turn that into his quote unquote winning issue, his political issue. It was a way to divert attention away from his failure to deal with COVID-19, but also an attempt to sort of spur the traditional backlash vote. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Despite Trump's vicious, cruel, clearly racist campaigning uh, in Minnesota, Wisconsin, remember Minnesota where George Floyd was killed, Wisconsin where Jacob Blake was, was shot, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, down in Georgia, all these, he lost them all. And now these weren't always by the widest margins, it wasn't always what I would have liked to have seen, but the fundamental reality is that Trump's attempt at the presidential level to stir a backlash that might've reelected him failed. That's a big deal. 
And it ought to be a lesson for Democrats. Uh, I know that there were centrist Democrats who tried to suggest that campaigning for against police violence, talk about defunding the police, things of that nature, harmed the Democratic Party. But I would argue that if you look more deeply at, at the issues, what you're going to find is that in the polling, people are prepared for fundamental change, much more prepared than, than I think a lot of Democratic Party leadership believe. And it's absolutely vital. It's vital that the Biden administration and Democrats in Congress continue to pursue these issues as well as Democratic leaders at the state and local level. I don't think there's a political danger to being strong in favor of the reforms that are necessary. I think it's a politically advantageous thing. And I do believe the election results tell us that. Um, so uh, what Black Lives Matter did, what its allies did this year was vitally important to placing issues at the center of our politics where they needed to be. And also to, I think, I hope, uh, transforming the approach of the Democratic Party to fundamental questions of not just police violence, but systemic racism. Big deal, a very big deal for this year. What struck me about election day was all the things that didn't happen that our friends were so worried about. There were no armed right-wing militias in the streets. There was no military coup by Trump. There was no civil war. Election day was pretty peaceful and ordinary. I mean, most people voted by mail, it turned out. Well, not most, but lots of people voted by mail. That certainly helped. And then we were sure that Trump's Supreme Court was going to support him in not just one replay of Bush v. Gore, but dozens. And the Supreme Court refused to hear a single one of the 50 cases. The states, the state Supreme Court, Wisconsin Supreme Court, Wisconsin's legislature all refused to go along with Trump's plan. So what surprised me was all the things that didn't happen that we feared were going to happen. Do you think we were just crazy to be worried about those things? Trump certainly said he wanted to do them. And then why didn't they happen? No, I don't think we were crazy to worry about those things at all. I think America had a democracy stress test in, in 2020, and it barely survived. You know, understand that uh, Donald Trump got 73 million votes for president of the United States. He did not lose by the margin that he should have lost by. And he got more He got more votes than any candidate in history, except for Joe Biden. That's right. And now Biden's victory was a substantial victory, and it's an important one. It's important to understand that Biden won by a wider margin, a, a wider margin than John Kennedy in 60, than Richard Nixon in 68, than uh, Jimmy Carter in in seventy six, then Clinton in the in the nineties, then Bush in the two thousands. He did have a real win, and in fact, he got the highest percentage of, of votes for of the vote for a challenger to a sitting president since Franklin Roosevelt defeated Herbert Hoover in nineteen thirty two. So, not to take away from Biden's victory, but the the simple reality is that this is a deeply divided country. And Trump had a strategy to exploit those divisions. What saved us from that exploitation of those divisions was the fact that grassroots campaigners swung not just one or two or three states, but a whole bunch of states. And that's the critical element here. Trump thought that he had a chance to win, or at least to make it very, very close in Minnesota, which had been close in 2016, 
in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, Nevada. Now, here's the interesting thing. Every one of those states went for Biden. They didn't go by always by big margins. Some Michigan, Minnesota did go by substantial margins, but they, they did go for Biden. And the interesting part about that is that it, it comes back to grassroots campaigners, particularly in, the, in cities like Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Detroit, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Atlanta, Phoenix, Las Vegas, who did the hard work and they, they pulled it across. Now, had you ended up in a situation where it came down to one state, as it did with Florida, or even two states, I think that that this democracy stress test would have been a much more serious circumstance, and it might not have gone as well as people think. You might have gotten up to the Supreme Court there. You might have had that, that intense ongoing fight that you had in Florida. One final thing, though, that's different from 2000 and or from the year 2000 with the Bush v. Gore is that a number of the close states, not all of them, but a number of them had Democratic governors, so you didn't have what you had in Florida. That's the case of uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Nevada. And the two Republican-led states that, that flipped, Georgia and Arizona, Trump, who is a transactional politician, he assumes he gives you something, you're going to do what he tells you to do. He did not have the, the loyalty of the Republicans who were running the elections there. I mean, they, they were willing to stand up to him. I'm not going to try and make them heroes for simply doing the right thing, but they did do the right thing uh, in Arizona and in Georgia. And that made Trump furious, but it also essentially made the, the possibility of mounting the sort of challenges that he had planned on essentially undoable. Finally, he hired a really bad legal team. <laughs> well, there's another way of putting that. He couldn't get any good lawyers to work on this nutty plan. Uh, you are correct, but I, I, I just cannot emphasize, when we go back to Bush v. Gore, and I wrote a book about it. In Bush v. Gore, you had the top lawyers in Florida and in Washington working for Bush and Cheney. This time, you had Rudy Giuliani and people who don't rise to Giuliani's level of legal skill standing in the parking lot at Four Seasons Lawn Care or whatever, you know, doing literally comic press conferences. And, uh, and don't underestimate, again, I keep coming back to this concept of a democracy stress test. Don't underestimate that hiring and, and relying on the gang that couldn't shoot straight made it much easier to beat Trump. And that's a big deal because we shouldn't be spending too much time patting ourselves on the back. We should recognize we dodged something awful, but the vulnerabilities are still there. John Nichols, freedomatthenation.com. John, it's great to have you on the show today. An honor to be with you, my friend. One more thing. We've got a special deal on subscriptions to the nation just for our listeners. For more progressive journalism and to support our show, please subscribe online. You can save over $30 a year on a digital subscription to the magazine and get unlimited digital access for just $14.95. To subscribe, visit thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. 
That's thenation.com slash podcast subscribe, one word. Again, this deal is only available to podcast listeners. So if you're enjoying the show, please become a subscriber. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.